Shalom, and thank you for listening to sermons from Tikvat Israel, a Messianic synagogue in the heart of Richmond, Virginia. Listening to the podcast is great, but if you want the full experience, please join us on Zoom or in the building Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for our worship service. For the Zoom link, please contact tikvatdirector at gmail.com or contact us on our website, tikvatisrael.com. There you can also support the ministry, learn more about Messianic Judaism, and find helpful resources. May Hashem bless you through the hearing of His Word. So here at Tikvat Israel, when we read the Hebrew translation of the New Covenant, often we use the translation of a man named Franz Delich. Is that what you were reading from this morning? No? But you do have that one. So a lot of times that's, that's the one we read. Uh, Delich was born in 1813 in Germany and became a Lutheran theologian and Hebraist used his knowledge of Mishnaic Hebrew and first century Judaism to create an authentically Jewish Hebrew translation of the New Testament. He himself was not Jewish, interestingly, but he had a great love for the Jewish people and Jewish texts at a time when most German theologians and most of Germany were steeped in anti-Semitism. He not only had a love for the Jewish people, but he translated that love into action, as we will see in a a moment. These actions deeply impacted a man named Isaac Lichtenstein, who was a Hungarian rabbi. He was born to an impoverished Orthodox family in the 1800s, and Lichtenstein studied Torah, Mishnah, and Talmud at home and in the yeshiva, later serving as the district rabbi of a Hungarian synagogue. Lichtenstein first encountered the New Testament when the head uh, teacher of the Jewish school showed him a Bible translated into German. Seeing the title page with the words, Jesus Christ, he chastised the young man for having this book. Lichtenstein had lived his whole childhood suffering from anti-Semitism, from, uh, unfortunately, from the church. However, rather than destroying the New Testament, he left it in the corner of his library and forgot about it. Lichtenstein was beloved in his synagogue, preaching on clinging to Torah observance at a time when the modern world was starting to encroach and uh, there was a lot of apathy uh, in, in the faith. And so he was, he, uh, he was trying to encourage his congregation. Today, we are fast approaching the festival of Passover, as I mentioned, which we anticipate in our community as a time of joy and celebrating the redemption of God. But back then in Eastern Europe, this was a difficult time to be Jewish. Uh, a few days before Passover in 1882, a young Christian girl disappeared. And there was a rumor that she had been murdered by Jews to use her blood in the matzah for Passover. This was a common anti-Jewish claim known as the blood libel. That year, Franz Dalich, Dalich, my German isn't so good, um, the Lutheran theologian who translated the New Testament into Hebrew, uh, the one that we read from, he published a pamphlet showing how ridiculous the charges were, and he pleaded with the nations to change their attitude toward the Jewish people, citing the New Testament and the words of Yeshua 
to show that anti-Semitism in the church was wrong. It was this incident and Dalish's response that caused Rabbi Lichtenstein to dust off that New Testament that was still on his shelf from 40 years earlier, expecting to find anti-Semitism, but instead he encountered Yeshua as the Prince of Peace and Redeemer. This is what he says in his own words, quote, I had thought the New Testament to be impure, a source of pride, of overweening selfishness, of hatred, of the worst kind of violence. But as I opened it, I felt myself peculiarly and wonderfully taken possession of. A sudden glory, a light flashed through my soul. I looked for thorns and gathered roses. I discovered pearls instead of pebbles, instead of hatred, love, instead of vengeance, forgiveness. Instead of bondage, freedom. Instead of pride, humility. Instead of enmity, conciliation. Instead of death, life, salvation, resurrection, heavenly treasure. Unquote. Rabbi Lichtenstein eventually came to put his trust in Yeshua and slowly started to incorporate the New Testament into his sermons. Uh, although he did it kind of covertly, he would say, you know, this. Uh, this uh, rabbi, first century rabbi, says this, but it would be about Yeshua. And uh, he was also steeped in the Talmud and the Jewish writings, and he never saw a contradiction between that, right? He just incorporated Yeshua within his, his Jewish faith as, as the district rabbi. And this was well before the modern Messianic movement. So he was like the only guy doing this. Um, and most, most Jewish people that came to faith, they assimilated, they, they joined a church. Eventually, he revealed his decision to the congregation, and because he was so beloved in the community, they wanted him to stay. And many of his congregants also became followers of Yeshua. Of course, there were many in the congregation who thought he was crazy or misguided, but he continued to serve as long as he could in his post that God had given him. Rabbi Lichtenstein remained a Jew within Judaism for Yeshua his entire life and continued to experience difficulty and persecution even as he chose to faithfully serve the Jewish community. He got many offers to, to join a church and lead there and to become a, a missionary to the Jews, but he saw his calling as needing to stay within his own Jewish community, as challenging as that could be sometimes. Here's a story from uh, one of his travels recorded in a book about his life from First Fruits of Zion, and that's where I gathered uh, a lot of these details from his life. Quote, at 5.30, Rabbi Lichtenstein was sitting outside the saloon on the lower deck of the steamer reading the New Testament. An old man who turned out to be the rabbi of a small town in this district came up and looking over Rabbi Lichtenstein's shoulder and seeing him read a Hebrew book, said, Shalom Aleichem, Rabbi, what are you reading? The New Testament was the reply. Is it not about the crucified one, he asked. Yes, answered the rabbi. He hung on a tree. But Rabbi, said the old man, did he not destroy the Torah and blaspheme Moses? Sit down, said the rabbi, and I will read to you, and you shall judge for yourself. And he turned up a number of passages to show him that the Messiah in himself fulfilled the Torah, that he, was, that he always appealed to Moses. After listening for some time, the old man said, Rabbi, 
I have only 30 Kreutzer with me, but I will give them to you for this book. Of course, he got the book without the money and went away highly pleased, unquote. There are three themes that I noticed in Rabbi Lichtenstein's story that I felt related to this week's Parsha. The first one is about representing and misrepresenting the Lord. Some of us may be familiar with the Parsha, but reading again this week, I noticed a couple interesting things that I hadn't noticed before. So for context, what's going on here? Well, we just came out of slavery in Egypt. We accepted the terms of the covenant. We said, we will do and we will shema. We will understand or we will listen, right? We have heard the Ten Commandments and many other related laws and instructions. Uh, But now Moses goes back up the mountain alone and the tablets are being inscribed by the finger of God as a reminder of the covenant, kind of like a ketubah for a marriage. But you know, 40 days is a long time, and the folks got restless. This was not good, right? Do we remember this? Let's pick it up in Exodus 32. This is what we find. When the people saw that Moshe was taking a long time to come down from the mountain, they gathered around Aharon and said to him, Get busy and make us gods to go ahead of us, because this Moses, the man that brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. Aharon said to them, have your wives, sons, and daughters strip off their gold earrings and bring them to me. The people stripped off their gold earrings and brought them to Aaron. He received what they gave him, melted it down, and made it into the shape of a calf. They said, Israel, here is your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. On seeing this, Aaron built an altar in front of it and proclaimed, tomorrow is to be a feast for Adonai. Early the next morning, they got up and offered burnt offerings and presented peace offerings. Afterwards, the people sat down to eat and drink. Then they got up to indulge in revelry. To say that this event is bad is an understatement. I mentioned that the rabbis traditionally connect the covenant at Sinai to a a marriage contract, right, between God and the children of Israel, with the Torah being the ketubah, or the, 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 the um, you know, the certificate. <laughs> yeah. In this analogy, what happens is akin to cheating on your spouse on the wedding night. Remember, we, they had just received the, the, the words of the covenant. They just said, okay, we will do this right? We will follow, we will obey. And, and you know, they, then they broke about three uh, out of the 10 commandments, like right away. Our tradition paints this story as akin to Israel's version of the rebellion in the garden when Adam and Eve ate the fruit and brought sin, death, and chaos into God's good world. It's, it's akin to that in our tradition, and you can see why. The first century Jewish historian Josephus, when he tells the Sinai story, guess what he does? He just leaves this part out for fear of anti-Semitism. One thing I noticed at that time is the people say about the golden calves, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. There is idolatry at at play here, but also notice there's a misrepresentation of Hashem. It's like the people are saying, the God that rescued you can be represented by this animal. It's a God that you can limit. 
You can control. You can worship however you want. The details about the golden rings, remember he says, gather the, gather the golden rings. That reminds us of the surrounding story. Remember, there's instructions to build a tabernacle so that God can dwell among Israel with his people. And those golden rings are the same word in Hebrew used when talking about the rings, which are supposed to, what, link the curtains for the presence of God to dwell with them. So the very thing that is supposed to draw them near to God is being used for idolatry. The burnt offerings and peace offerings here, they're just done willy-nilly, along with indulging in revelry, which, you know, is a code for not kosher stuff. And it's a reference to the laws and ordinances about prescribed offerings and festivals, which surround this text. They're described just after what we're supposed to give as an offering for Passover and Shavuot is just after this, but they're just doing it their own way. To me, this is kind of like the anti-Semitism that Lichtenstein experienced and other hateful thinking about others. When we claim to follow God, but we are hateful in our character, when we blame others, we misrepresent Hashem. This is the God that brought you out of Egypt. No, it's not. (laughs) It's not. And uh, this, like these actions, it causes others to stumble when we do that, right? Which is worse than just messing up ourselves. We should also be slow to speak for God or claim that we understand God, right? We should be slow to to speak prophetically and say, uh, God told me this or thus saith the Lord, right? We need to be slow to do that. Rabbi Lichtenstein had to admit that he had a prejudgment against the New Testament without ever reading it and which was corrected once he opened it right? And he was open to learning about the real Yeshua who was and is a Jew. Lichtenstein came to trust in Yeshua quite late in life, right? This was 40 years after he first received that New Testament. He was an older man. And, you know, I don't know what to say about that. I don't want to insult anybody, but uh, it's, it's hard for someone that's, you know, lived their entire life experiencing anti-Semitism from the church to change their mind, to admit maybe they were wrong about this thing. And so, you know, when Yeshua got a hold of him, he knew the cost, right? He knew what was at stake, and he still surrendered. Second, this Parsha is about reframing the past with kindness, One method of kindness that I really enjoy, I like to call the sandwich. I mean, who doesn't like a sandwich? Am I right? Yeah, but this is a kindness sandwich. So, which is where you you deliver the difficult piece of news in between two encouraging or uplifting things. Even an open face sandwich is is better than just, you know, the middle part, right? So it would be like, uh, I appreciate that you're doing the dishes, But remember, those plastic covers are not machine washable. You know, it's like a little bit of encouragement in there. It's an open face sandwich that kind of helps, right? As I mentioned earlier, the story of the golden calf is surrounded by chapter after chapter description of the tabernacle. Before this episode, God gives Moses instructions on it. And after this episode, the actual building of it is described almost word for word repeating what what happened before. For what purpose? What's the purpose? 
for God to dwell with Israel. In other words, there is a tabernacle, a God with us sandwich surrounding the worst episode in our history. God's response to our rebellion is actually the opposite of what we expect and deserve. He draws near. Amazing, right? Baruch Hashem. Often we are haunted by our past, our mistakes, our should-haves, our could-haves, our would-haves. The horrific incident with the blood libel accusation was really an opportunity for Franz Delich to stand up for the Jewish people and for Rabbi Lichtenstein to see how true followers of Yeshua walk in love. Delich reframed this terrible event with what? With kindness, with love. So the question is, how can we show kindness, not just toward others, but toward ourselves, toward our past, right? And therefore we can reframe the difficult things that we've experienced and gone through. The third connection between Rabbi Lichtenstein's story and the Parsha is the idea of the faithful intercessor. Moses is upset at the children of Israel. And I don't know if you remember this, but he throws down the tablets, apparently in frustration. But there's a midrash about this, which sheds some light on what may be actually going on here. Have you ever thought that maybe it was a kindness that he did to destroy those tablets? Yeah, Kathy is saying yes. So this is what the Midrash says. This is from Exodus Rabbah. When the Israelites committed the sin of the golden calf, God sat in judgment to condemn them. As Deuteronomy 9.14 says, let me alone that I may destroy them. But God had not yet condemned them. So Moses took the tablets from God to appease God's wrath. The Midrash compared the act of Moses to that of a king's marriage broker. The king sent the broker to secure a wife for the king. But while the broker was on the road, the woman corrupted herself with another man. Again, adultery and idolatry are connected. The broker, who was entirely innocent, took the marriage document that the king had given the broker to seal the marriage and tore it, reasoning that it would be better for the woman to be judged as an unmarried woman than as a wife. The rest of the text actually supports this idea. Moses, what is he doing? He's contending for the rest of Israel. We read that earlier, right? He's representing them to God, and he's representing God to them. He's interceding on their behalf. How many times does he do this? He does it five times in this text. Why is that? Well, some of the rabbis say it's because when he was originally called, he resisted the call of God five times. Remember, he said, oh, I can't, I'm not a good speaker. What if they don't believe me, right? He had five uh, misgivings about being called to redeem the people of Israel. And here he intercedes five times. Interesting. Uh, He also tells uh, the children of Jacob that he is going to make atonement for them in this Parsha, right? He says, I'm going to see if I can atone for you, which is an intercessory role, like a priestly role, right? And then uh, this is, we even find this in Exodus 32, uh, starting in verse 31. Moshe went back to Adonai and said, please, these people have committed a terrible sin. They have made themselves a God out of gold. Now, if you will just forgive their sin, but if you won't, then I beg you, blot me, blot me out of your book, which you have written. 
take me out of your book of life. Thus, Moses puts his own life in exchange for all of Israel. In a similar way, Rabbi Lichtenstein chose to remain a Jew for Yeshua within the Jewish community, seeking to bless the rest of Israel from within. And then he also blessed the historic church as a Jew. He would write to them and encourage them, but as a Jew, despite continued persecution and suffering and attacks on him and his family, there was a, a, a someone sent a, 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 told the barber to cut off his beard when he got a haircut, right? And, and back then, you know, the beard is, is a rabbi's, you know, honor and glory. And so it was very... Uh, he, he just went through a lot and his wife suffered as well, but he stuck with it because he clung to Yeshua as a Jew. He's an amazing guy. So, and this is similar to our mission, right? As a, as a congregation, what are we doing? We're building a congregation for Yeshua within the Richmond Jewish community. We're trying to be a blessing. We're trying to stand in the gap to pray for our Jewish community to humbly seek to connect and be a part. So the question is, how can we remain connected to the community in humility? Without being pushy, how can we represent God's love and not misrepresent him to our own Jewish community? As Messianic Jews and Messianic Gentiles, this is also how we see Yeshua the Messiah. Remember, he is the faithful intercessor within Israel he also remains a Jew, right? He remains within Israel. He represents the Jewish people to God and represents God to the Jewish people. He is the fullness of the glory of the image of God. And by trusting in him, we are transformed into that image. He is the example of blessing through what he suffered. The example for all of us, he was the example for Rabbi Lichtenstein, right? That was his encouragement, was Yeshua's suffering. He was the one who Moses said would come after him, right? Moses said, there's going to be another prophet to come after me, right? And you need to follow him, and it will be in the same way. It would be like a Moses 2.0, right? But where Moses failed, right, because he was human, right, then we have Yeshua fulfilling the same role but in a different way, in a new way. Right? Like Moses, Yeshua exchanges his life for the life of all Israel and all the nations. Messiah Yeshua also reframes our mistakes, doesn't he? He reframes our sins, our shameful golden calves that we have in our past. How does he do it? With his kindness, with his love. He makes atonement for us, that which Moses was seeking to do, Yeshua does in fullness. Amen? So let's go forth and let's allow him to conform us to his glorious image of kindness and self-giving love. Let's pray. Abba, Father, we praise you and thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for these examples of brave souls who clung to you, Lord, as Messianic Jews, who did not count the, the, the shame 
of what they were doing as something to, to hold on to, but they held on to you, Lord. Encourage us to be encouragers. Encourage us to do the same, to, to play in some smaller way an intercessory role to represent the rest of Israel to you, Lord, and to represent you to the rest of Israel, to be a light to our own people and to the nations. Help us, Lord, to represent you well and not misrepresent you and help us to show kindness to to ourselves and to others and to allow your love, your self-giving love to wash over us, to renew us and to draw us back to you. And in Yeshua's name we pray. Amen.